Hi, thanks for joining us online. We're glad that you've chosen to access this message. It's so encouraging to know that God is using the ministry of Portico Community Church to touch the hearts and lives of people all across the world. If you have a story to share or a prayer request, we would love to hear from you at info at porticocanada.ca. To support our ministry, you can donate online by clicking on the Donate button at the top right of your screen. Once again, we're so glad that you've joined us. It's our prayer that this message from God's Word will deeply impact your life. Good morning, Portico. I love the energy in this room. And welcome those of you that are online. Hey, let's do something. We don't often do this, but give a big hand for everybody that's joining us online today. We often... uh, We forget sometimes we get inside of the room and we forget that we have people from all across our country and from different points around the world that are actually dialed in right now. They're tuned in with us. And so we welcome you, those of you that are online today. We are one church, one message, many expressions. And uh, be sure to join Rick for the discussion that's taking place on the Brampton expression that's coming up real, real quick. We'll get your Bibles. I'll get your apps out and uh, take your notes. They're in the bulletin today. You can also take them on the app. We are moving on in the book of James, and we're into a new section. We're going to be dealing with a series that's called Character Counts. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to dive deep into what James writes to the early followers of Jesus. And he actually has some words for them that at moments become a little bit challenging, but grows them into the type of people that God has called them to be. Now, while you're doing that, I have a question. Everybody okay with Interactive Church? Oh, good. You're ready to go. You've had your caffeine. If I said to you the name Keith Reinhardt, does anybody know that name? Real quick, show of hands. Keith Reinhardt. No, he's not my name. All right, we got one hand in the room already. This is good. One contestant. Here we go. 1970, Keith was working as creative director for an ad agency. He was approached, their company was approached, to bid to pitch a national TV ad campaign. They were one of many ad agencies. They were going to pitch a national TV ad campaign. The marketing campaign was worth $34 million in 1970. How's your RSP? Yeah, yeah, yeah. $34 million opportunity. And so Keith was the lead on this. He would pen five words, and he had no idea the power that those words contained. He thought it would be good to pitch for the campaign, but little would he realize the ripple effect that would come out of those five words. And it would not only put this company on the map nationally, it would explode internationally, and this company would begin to escalate into the area where their ad campaign now, their marketing ad campaign, is $1.46 billion a year. Guaranteed my RSP is not close. What did he say, and who was it that he wrote the jingle for it? Now, interesting, five words became a little jingle. That jingle became the top-rated jingle of the 20th century, and for 43 years held a trademark, and everybody understood it. It was a fast food company. Anybody know who it was? McDonald's. That's exactly who it was. Keith Reinhardt wrote the jingle for McDonald's. Anybody know what the 1970s jingle was? You do deserve a break. Brenda, you're my lady. Oh, all right. We got double down. Ann was over there helping out. We got tag team going on. The line was, you deserve a break today. And whether you heard it for the first time in 1970, and some of you are going, I wasn't even born. 
You heard it through YouTube, you've heard it through repeated ads, and it wasn't released until 2013. They finally let it go. And Keith, interesting comment. Keith, in writing his book, reflecting back on his own life and his practice, he said this, part of the power of the line that I wrote, when I penned the words, you deserve, it granted consumers permission to indulge in fast food meals at McDonald's. Wow. It escalated that company. It put them on the map. And in fact, people began to go, I do deserve a break today. How many deserve a break today? See, you're already thinking about it. I lost you at McDonald's. You're going, they have healthy food now. We should all go out. And Keith, when he penned these words, did not even realize that two simple words, you deserve would actually ignite the flame of entitlement in the human psyche. And those words, once you light them, are nearly impossible to extinguish. Because as soon as you get your mind wrapped around, I deserve this, you won't let it go. You are as tenacious at pursuing whatever you feel you deserve. And if you leave it unchecked, entitlement will escalate into a serious character flaw. It'll plant the seeds of discontentment, ingratitude, and greed. It will enable a presumptive posture in your relationship with God. And it will cause you to manipulate your relationships because you deserve the best in your relationships. So another question for you. Is Reinhard to blame for all of our problems today? I say yes. No, of course not. He's not. All he did was scratch at a character flaw that exists in the brokenness of our sinful humanity. He understood something, and I don't know whether it was sheer genius or just a creative moment of inspiration, but when he wrote down, you deserve, he was thinking about food, and everybody else took it as entitlement. You're right. I could just see moms at home, dad coming home. Back then... Often you could get by with a single salary income, and so moms would often stay home to raise the kids, and they'd come home, and we, we deserve a break today, Dad. We're going to McDonald's. Dad had no option. He had to take them to McDonald's. He didn't realize what he was going to release in this, but what I find fascinating about it is all of us struggle with this, not McDonald's, because we wouldn't be doing 5K runs with Rick if we were struggling with McDonald's. But we struggle with this sense of entitlement, And the Bible speaks candidly about the seriousness of the issue and the dangerous threat that it poses to our life. Let me show you. Get your Bibles out. Let's go here. James chapter 4 is where I want to go to. So James actually writes to the first early church, and he writes to the followers of Jesus, and his words are fascinating. Listen carefully. I'm going to read verse 1 in chapter 4. James writes to them. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God? Therefore, anyone who opposes or who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scriptures say without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit that he has caused to dwell within us? But he gives us more grace. That's why the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. Wow. These people were seriously messed up, don't you think? Aren't you glad we're not like them? Oh, maybe we are. 
Maybe we are. Maybe what James understood is something that predates even James, and it goes all the way back to when brokenness entered into humanity. And James recognized that entitlement just engenders in us this dissatisfaction with the status quo, so much so that we're willing to tear others down and we're willing to abandon our relationship with God in order to get what we want. And so I'm thankful that James doesn't just point out a problem. He actually identifies a solution for us. He said there's a way to work through this. There's a way we can get better. And it's a character trait that all of us need to work on. And collectively, he calls this community of believers, and I call our community of believers, into the same journey. And he calls us to this one thought of humility. Humility. James recognizes that humility is the only way to effectively combat this issue of entitlement in our lives, and that's how we need to walk forward. Now, another question for you. How many of you are humble? You just say, yeah, I'm, I'm a pretty humble person. See, any of us that raised our hands, we're not humble. Because we wanted you to know that we're humble, right? And those of you who just raised your hands, you're going, I don't like him anymore. So I'll get to you a little bit later in my message this morning. But, you know, we don't go around promoting our humility, do we? Because then it's false humility. But it would be pretty funny if we walked around telling people we were humble. So I give you permission just for today just for today. And if you're online, you can try this out too. So after we dismiss, uh, there's another service that's going to fill the room. So after we dismiss and you're making your way out, just walk up to the next service crowd that's coming in and go, hi, and tell them your name and say, I'm humble. (laughs) How are you today? I'm humble. And just go through the parking lot. We could have a lot of fun with this, couldn't we? Oh, you're you're a little reluctant at that. I know, because you've perfected humility. You don't want to embarrass yourself. All right, so let's get into this. Why is humility so important? Get your notes up. For me, here's what I want you to understand. I, I try to, you know, comprehend what, what's the way to frame this. Humility for me is a little bit like when I put antivirus software on my computer. I know that it's essential. It's necessary because it's going to safeguard the operating system. It's going to protect and check the files that I already have. It's going to scan for viruses. It's going to quarantine any potential threats. And it's going to run continuously in the background. It's there. That's a little bit of what humility is like in my thinking. I don't walk out and tell you I'm humble. I don't self-promote. I don't project a sense of false humility. But I work at developing what James calls this character trait of humility in my life because I know that if it's there, the benefits are measurable and immediate. So here's what I want to give you if you're up for this. Let me give you three immediate benefits of humility. And here's where I want you to take a few notes this morning. What are the immediate benefits? Number one, humility will safeguard you from entitlement. So what is this whole thing of entitlement anyhow? It's this feeling that the the world owes me something. It's characterized by the expectation that I should get something without having to give something. Here's what I've noticed. Things have changed recently. When we used to interview potential employees for jobs, we would often spend a great deal of time talking about the job description and the nature of the work and the people that they're going to be working with. We spend more time now answering their questions, what are my benefits, what are my perks, and when do they start? You ever notice that? Like, we want to know right away what's in it for me rather than what's expected of me. And it's just penetrated and infiltrated our entire world. 
So it's a sense that there's got to be something that I'm getting, and I don't necessarily have to give. I deserve, think about this, well, I deserve the new car. Well, I deserve the exhaust. I heard a yes over here. An amen. All right. It was far, not you, Kel. It was further over. Okay, I got that. I deserve the new car. I deserve the exotic vacation. After all, they're on TV and they're on the radio telling me I should. I deserve the bigger home. I deserve the raise. I deserve respect. I deserve position. I deserve authority. I deserve power. See, it's all built into the sense of entitlement, and it's not the sense of walking through because humility addresses a lot of this. So I started to dive deeper into this because I realized that so much of our advertising today appeals to this sense of entitlement, and it feeds our discontentment. So if you look at the commercials and you look at everything that's generated, what is it doing? It's trying to remind you you're not happy with where you're at right now. You're not satisfied. You shouldn't be satisfied. There's so much more that you could have. So advertising spends enormous amounts of money to remind you that it's not good to be humble in in the status that you are. You should pursue more. So entitlement entices you to want what others have. Here's what James says, James chapter 4, verse 1. He says, what's causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires that war within you? That's pretty straight language. He goes, "Your, your desires are all based on what you see that other people have. And he goes, isn't that really what's causing all the unsettledness? That you're caught up in competition and comparison, and you're not comfortable in the place and the status that God has called you to. Dr. Linda Mintel is a therapist and a Christian author. She writes this, as a Christian, I struggle with the concept of entitlement that is so heavily promoted in our culture, because I find it's impacting the way that we think about our relationships, how we deal with our finances, and how we manage our emotional and our spiritual lives. She goes on to say, when I'm entitled, I begin to think that people treat me unfairly or don't give me enough. Financially, I end up in debt because I desire to have what I can't afford to purchase. And emotionally and spiritually, I live in anger, resentment, and frustration because I just feel like I should get so much more than what I already have. And so entitlement actually entices us to want what others have. It also tempts us to ask with the wrong motives. So I thought about this. And here's a little exercise. Let's do this together. Uh, How many would pray? How many of you say you pray? Most of us have said, dear God, for one reason or another. But I mean, we pray. So let's do a little quick assessment on our prayer life. When you pray, most often, and this is standard, this is pretty natural across you know, if we did a a survey, most of us talk to God versus listen. That's pretty basic. And we're usually telling God what we want. So how many of your prayers are about your wants versus your needs? Wouldn't it be fascinating if we could get the percentage on that? Because so often when we pray, we slide across the line from praying, you know, give me today my daily bread into Ooh, that's a cool-looking Porsche. How do I get one of those? And so it's very subtle, but that's what happens. And so not only does entitlement move me into wanting what other people have, now I begin to exercise entitlement with my prayers with God. And the way I begin to pray shifts it over. And God said, pray today. In fact, wasn't it Jesus that said, here's how you should pray? And give me today my daily 
Some of you have interpreted that to mean money, but I think maybe daily sustenance. What do I need to exist today? And when you can pray that prayer and walk in simplicity, there's a humility that gets exercised in this. God won't always give us what we want. And that's probably a good thing, I would say. Because sometimes what we want, God knows, will destroy us. And entitlement can actually get us into a pretty dangerous territory. Look at James chapter 4, verse 3. James says, you know, when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are wrong. You want only what will give you, what's the word? Oh, ouch. He goes, so much of what you want is about your personal pleasure. And he goes, be careful because that's what entitlement drives towards. And entitlement will ignore what God has already given us. In fact, earlier in James chapter 1, verse 17, James had already reminded the people, he said, do you know that every good and perfect gift comes down from our Father above? And that God is a good Father and He knows how to give good gifts to His children? That's the kind of God that we have, that God loves us so much. And the immediate benefit in our life is that when we're walking in humility, we know that humility will safeguard us from the trap of entitlement. Number two, there's another immediate benefit here. Humility will keep us close to God. It'll actually keep us close to God. And James was actually helping the people understand how this works. All right, another exercise. Interactive church. Those of you online, you'll just have to participate from home. I'm going to ask you to think back over the span of your life. Now, some of you start spinning your hard drives now because you've got more memory to work through than some of the others in the room, right? So get them all spun up and let's get going here. Think over the span of your life. What is the worst name somebody has ever called you? Now, don't shout it out. We're in church. Don't shout it out. Don't shout it out. Don't, 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 don't. All right. So think carefully. Some of you are still just, wait, Doug, takes a little longer for my operating system to kick in here. What is the worst name somebody has ever called you? And do you remember how you felt when they said that? All right, so when I was born, I, I didn't come out sort of with this more subdued red hair. Mine was vibrant red when I was born. And so when I was, you know, age to go to school, I started to go to school, I can still remember the kids at school. Boy, kids can be mean in grade one, can't they? Um, let's have a therapy session. Man, I'm telling you. And as soon as they saw me, because I was different than the others, they called me out, Rusty. I'm not Rusty. I wasn't out in the rain. There's nothing wrong with my body, but they saw the hair. And so, you know, and kids will do that. They call you Rusty. They call you Redhead. They call you Freckle-Faced. They called me a son of a... Oh, what were you guys thinking? My dad was a preacher. I was the son of a preacher. Oh, look where your minds go on Sunday morning. See, you thought of it because somebody used that name for you, didn't you? Oh, why are we talking about names in church, Doug? I want to go back to James. So I want you to think about this letter. James chapter 4, James is writing, and, and we know. Now, they didn't have chapters and verses. They were letters. Most of the time, the early church would get together. Think about the first century. Let's pretend we're there. They would gather together. Sometimes they would have the readings of the Old Testament. They'd have the Torah. Occasionally, as the church matured, there were letters from some of the leaders that were starting to circulate. People like Paul and people like John and people like Matthew and people like Mark. So when these letters were circulating, people go, hey, we're going to have Mark's letter in church today. What? We got Mark's letter. And on this Sunday, there was a letter from James. James. 
So imagine you're part of this community now and you hear that James has written a letter to the church. You go, let's go to church today because the elders are going to read the letter from James. You're all excited to go to church. So everybody gets in church and you sit down. And again, there's no chapter, no heading, no verses. And there's only one letter. There's an elder at the front of the room and you're waiting for him to read the letter. So he greets everybody. You're sitting there with anticipation. And as he's reading the letter, he gets into page three and page four. And then he stops and he clears his throat. And he goes, <clears> throat> You adulterers. What? What? You're sitting in the room, and James, your spiritual leader, has written to you, and he just... That's not a hallmark moment. That's not the kind of card that you expect to get from James, is it? But James, he says, you adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world means you're an enemy with God? Ouch. I mean, the guy did not hold any punches here. He didn't pull the punches back. He laid it right out. Why would James do that? Because James recognized what was happening to the church community. Now remember, some of them were wealthy owners, and they owned slaves. Some of them were slaves working for the owners. All of them were underneath Roman occupation. They certainly didn't have the privilege and prosperity that we enjoy here. And yet he writes to them and he says, I can see this pernicious evil in the church that's beginning to affect your relationships and it shouldn't be there. He said, it's out there in the culture, but it shouldn't be inside the church community. And he goes, you're shifting your focus away from God and you're going to lose out your relationship with God if you're not careful. And so he calls them out and he goes, your relationship with God is like adultery. Well, that's like a slap. Many of them probably said, I'm not going to church next Sunday if they're going to read those kind of letters in church. But I love James. He didn't stop at verse 4. He goes on to verse 5. See, he doesn't point out a problem without giving a solution to it. And in verse 5, he says this, Don't you know that God jealously longs for the spirit that's within you? Oh, that's good. Think about that. James is telling everybody who is a follower of Jesus, he's telling you that God jealously longs for the Spirit that He's placed in you. That God is so passionate about... One of the translations actually says passion. God is passionate about His relationship with you, so much so that He, by His Spirit, would prompt James, James, call this out early on. Call foul. Call them offside. Do whatever you need to do so that the people's hearts will be turned back towards me, that they'll walk in humility and understand that when you start to give yourself over and you start to follow the pattern that the world operates under, that friendship with the world, it's going to create distance with me. It's going to divide loyalties. It's going to compromise commitment. James, don't let them go there because God loves you. And listen, somebody in the room, you need to hear this. God passionately loves you today. He loves you so much that He's willing to rebuke us so that we can walk in relationship with Him because He knows that the rebuke will bring healing and health. Otherwise, we're headed towards destruction. And too many people allow themselves to move into this pathway and not walking in humility actually ends up compromising their relationship with God. Well, so then what's humility? What does it look like? I like what C.S. Lewis said. We'll put it on the screen for you. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. That's profound. See, it's very true. What happens is we get so caught up in 
our self-awareness and what we think other people are thinking of us. Like, I'm sitting here thinking, I wonder what they all think of me right now. The ones who raise their hands about, you know, are you humble? They're still waiting to get me at the end of the church today. And every conversation we get into, when we meet somebody, we start thinking, I wonder what they're thinking about me right now. We get into our groups. We get into our families. You know, quite honestly, they're not thinking about you. We spend so much time and energy wondering what people think about us. If we knew that they weren't thinking about us, it would free us up. And so humility is when we recognize I don't have to be consumed wondering what people are thinking of me. I have to be consumed just glorying in the fact that God is thinking about me all the time, that God is passionate about Doug, that God cares about whether I'm struggling or God cares about whether I'm succeeding, that God cares about what's taking place in my world, in my life. That's how much God loves me and that's how much God loves you. And friends, wouldn't it be amazing if we could walk in humility, not consumed by being worried about what we think other people are thinking of us, but simply consumed by wondering, God, how are we doing today? How is our relationship going today? I love what James says, James chapter 4, verse 8, he says, come close to God and God will, what does it say? Wow. How do I get God in my life? People ask it all the time. How do I get more of God in my life? And James says, it's easy. Come close to God. And God says, I'll be there. I'll come close to you. Immediate benefits. All of us can experience them. And it's wonderful for us. You look at the playbook of humility and you go back to the life of Jesus. And Jesus spoke in Matthew chapter 5 and he talked about the Beatitudes. Blessed are. And he begins to describe what it is to walk in relationship with God. And he says, if we empty ourselves, if we empty all of the selfish pursuits out of our lives and we understand what it is to be a person, just to be in God's presence, there's power in that. And in chapter 5 verse 3 he says these words, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for Him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. He said, if, if we walk in humility and we understand that we just trust God, He goes, you now have everything that's in God's kingdom. Friends, isn't that powerful? Yeah. That we can own and live in the prosperity of God's kingdom when we walk in humility before God. All right, immediate benefits. Number three, write it down real quick. Humility also promotes healthy relationships. So go to James chapter 4, verse 11, and if your Bibles are still open, and I have your notes there as well, look what James writes. He says, don't speak evil against each other, brothers and sisters, because if you criticize and judge each other, then you're criticizing and judging God's laws, but your job is to obey the law, not to judge whether it applies to you or not. So it's that phrase right at the beginning that James makes very practical. He said, don't speak evil against each other. Very, very actionable. See, the Bible's so practical, isn't it? So James says that humility will help promote healthy relationships. You go, Doug, how does that work? Well, if you're writing notes, write this down. Refuse to talk negatively about others. Refuse to talk negatively about others. James says, stop all the caustic relationships that are taking place. And the quickest way to stop the devastation is to stop speaking about it. Here's what we know. When we're hurt or we're wounded, our boss does, our employer, employer does something to us and it hurts us, we go home, we'll tell our family, and then we'll tell our friends. And typically what we'll do is, you know, we'll belittle them or we'll, we'll share the issue and we'll share the pain and we'll build ourselves up, we'll tear them down a little bit. But we've also created now a, a gap or a chasm in the relationship for other people when they think of this person. Because as soon as they think of them, they think about, oh, they're a terrible, wicked individual, right? 
And then we share with our small group, we go, could you pray about this? Because my boss is a, and don't use the word, and you think about that, and they listen to you, and suddenly they now have the same thoughts. And then you speak to other people. You speak to your friends about how bad that person was to you. Do you know what's happening in that moment? Here's what your friends know, but they're not telling you. If you're willing to tell me about that person, that means you're willing to tell other people about me. That when you're dissatisfied with me, you're going to speak negatively about our relationship as well. And that's a truth in our human nature. So James says the only way to correct this, do not speak evil against one another. One of the translations says don't slander each other. And you go, I don't know. I can't do that. They hurt me so deeply. Do you know what they said to me? Which is why the Bible says it is God's role to judge. God is your vindicator. God is the one who will rescue you. See, we want to self-rescue, but that's not humility. Humility is when we come before God and we lay out our grievances in His presence and you go, God, you see this. And in the grand scale of time, I know that you weigh the balance of all things. And I'm going to trust you with this. And that, friends, takes a lot of humility to do that. Because it's far more, there's far more immediate satisfaction when I go out and complain about somebody, isn't it? But it's far healthier when I don't. And when I allow my lips to speak, the Bible says that the power of the tongue, it has the power of life and death. I can choose to give you life or I can choose to give you death. And it's all through the power of words. So James reminds us that those who are humble are people who will hold their tongue because they know the power that they hold. Very interesting. So refuse to talk negatively about others. Another way to do this is what we choose to demonstrate love. James 2.8 2, uh, 2, says this, It is good when you obey the royal law as it's found in the Scriptures that you will love your neighbor as yourself. Do you have a neighbor that's just hard to love? Let's be honest. Anybody? <laughs> okay. A few of us. All right, now we're getting there. You know we're in church, right? And God can see you. We all have neighbors, maybe not in this neighborhood, but we've had neighbors. They're just hard to love. And if you couldn't raise your hand, maybe you're that neighbor. <laughs> Did I say that out loud? There's, there are some things I should only think and never say out loud, right? Interesting that James would go, don't speak love. Love. You go, okay, Doug, so what does that mean? I, I just... I try to get along with them. How do I demonstrate love? Well, maybe we pick up where Paul wrote, and he said, did you know that love is patient and kind? It's not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It doesn't demand its own ways. It's not irritable. It doesn't keep any records of wrong. It does not rejoice at injustice, but it rejoices whenever the truth wins out. That Paul was writing those words, not because he knew that one day we were going to get married and we needed something to fill the ceremony. He was writing those words because he knew that one day we would be tempted to speak negatively about other people and we wouldn't know how to live our lives. And he goes, did you know that you can actually speak out truth in ways that will build people up and that you can begin to lift them up and see them really prosper? And when you do that, your humility quotient starts to rise with it because that's what humility does in our lives. It's the power of walking in right relationship with God. So the summation of the whole thing, what do we take away? Well, here's what I wrote. 
Maybe Keith Reinhardt was right after all. You do deserve a break today. You deserve a break from the debilitating grip of entitlement. You deserve a break from the cheap substitutes that attempt to displace God's rightful position in your life. And you deserve a break from relationships that are caustic, abusive, and draining. Because James reminds us of what the Spirit spoke to him and he shared it with the church. Come near to God and he'll come near to you. Humble yourself under God's mighty hand and he will lift you up. You do deserve a break, and that's the break I pray for you today. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for the power of your word and the truth of it. I pray that we would recognize that you have called us into relationship with you, and that in this relationship there is a constant war for our desires. And it's so easy to feel entitled, and it's so easy to feel what we deserve and what we should have, and to be able to share that with others. But when we're honest, we recognize that it really does. It displaces you. It, hurt, it hurts and harms our relationships with others. And it really puts me back in the center. So today, for all of us, I just pray, may we walk humbly before you. May we draw near you as you make us new, because we are your family, your children. And I pray that you would do a good work, a complete work in our hearts. And I ask it in Christ's name. Amen.